Welcome, everybody, to the inaugural episode, it's so good to say that finally, of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. And I am thrilled, thrilled to give an introduction to my esteemed inaugural guest, who, by the way, was the first person I asked, the first person that came to mind when I knew I wanted to launch this project. And thank goodness for me, she also said yes. So please let me give you an introduction First, at this point, there are so many of you who I'm sure will know her in the event that you are the one person on the planet that doesn't. Please allow me to give her introduction. Heather Hirsch, MD, MS, NCMP, is the founder of the Menopause and Midlife Clinic at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and also served on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Hirsch is board certified in internal medicine and completed advanced fellowship training in women's health at the Cleveland Clinic. Now, her specialty practice focuses on menopausal hormone therapy, perimenopause, breast cancer survivorship, sexual dysfunction, bone health, and other conditions common to women in midlife. She is an active member and contributing member of the North American Menopause Society and the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health and serves on the Medical Advisory Board of MIDI Health, the first digital platform designed for women's unique needs in midlife. She is also the author of Unlock Your Menopause Type, Real Science-Based Advice on Menopause and Perimenopause from a board-certified MD. And she also has her own podcast, as if she wasn't busy enough, called Health by Heather Hirsch. Without further ado, the one and only Dr. Heather Hirsch. Welcome to Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. This is so exciting, and congratulations on your new baby. It's like having a child, and I couldn't be more excited to spend this time talking with you and your listeners, especially as we head into a new year. There's just so much that we could talk about. I am so excited. I am so excited to hear you say that, and before we dive in um, to what will be the inaugural episode about menopause, which is a fitting start, I think, to my project because as a woman in her perimenopausal era and uh, an era that so many of my friends and relatives are currently in, there is still so much either misinformation, lack of education, and we're going to dive into a lot of the basics about menopause today, but I also wanted to just um, take one step back because The reason why you were the very first person I thought of to extend an invite to launch this baby is because my journey of perimenopause and my own education actually started with you. And you don't know this story. And I know we've we've met each other a few times, and I've just always been so in awe of your work. But my journey started uh, two and a half years ago, and I started to have heart palpitations. And of course, I'm someone who's very fit, and I started to feel these funny symptoms. And of course, I think any normal human says oh my gosh, am I having a heart attack? I think it's sort of the natural place our mind goes. And I was uh, went straight to my family doctor and she said, listen, and she's great by the way. And she said, listen, why don't we just cover the bases? You're going to go to a cardiologist and do all the things. So went to the cardiologist, wore a halter monitor, all of the things only to come back with, yes, you are having sort of these skips, but there's no underlying pathology. There's nothing underneath that that we have to worry about. So kind of go on your merry way. And as someone who really takes her health seriously, it just wasn't a sufficient answer for me. And then one fine day, as one does, scrolling through Instagram is the first day that I found Heather Hirsch, MD. Dr. Heather Hirsch, and the first video I ever watched of yours was talking about how heart palpitations are one of 
the many symptoms of perimenopause. So number one, mind blown. Sorry, what did she just say? Heart palpitations. And number two, what is this thing she speaks of? Perimenopause. I've heard of menopause. What's perimenopause? So I want to go back and, and ask you, you, you know, you see women, you have a telehealth practice. What are the things that your patients are saying to you that maybe probably sound a lot like what I'm sharing with you? Well, first of all, I love that story. And it really is a testament to why I still, to this day, will continue to kind of make a fool of myself on social media. And when I first started back in 2017, I was just so excited. I thought, you know, everyone's going to be so interested in this. I didn't know anything about social media, to be honest. And I, I don't know if I still do. But it is so incredible to hear that I can help somebody piece together a little bit or point them in the right direction or validate some of their crazy symptoms or feelings like as you're scrolling, as one does, right? As we all do. And I love that story. And it's just, it's so inspiring for me. Patients are my absolute North Star. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the symptoms that I you know, know about or that are classically in textbooks and some of the unfamiliar ones all come from my patients constantly kind of giving me this information, this feedback. And so symptoms can range to the obvious things like hot flashes and night sweats, and everyone under the sun knows that. But it's more the uncommon symptoms that women are particularly interested in, not only because one, they're spending all this time trying to figure out and see all these different doctors on where is this strange thing coming from. Uh, but number two, it's really quite validating because as women, we're told constantly that it's in our heads or we're making it up or we're being dramatic or we're being crazy or we're being hormonal. And really, all of that is a physiologic process that actually is happening to us. And we're not crazy and we're not making these things up. So your original question, which was, what are some of the more uncommon symptoms that I hear I could give you a really long list, but thinking about head to toe, and I'm going to just going to kind of go through both common and uncommon, but hair loss and hair thinning. Some people know that's a common thing that can happen through the transition. Some women don't know that hair loss and hair shedding or even change in hair texture, right? Curly hair to straight hair or straight hair to frizzy, your hair texture can change as our hormones decline. Your vision can change, ringing in your ear, actually itchy ears. This can be outer ear or inner ear. And it's the funniest one because I get so many comments on that when I talk about itchy ears. Tactile sensitivities, so like your favorite clothes or jewelry or earrings, just all of a sudden irritating you. We call that tactile sensitivity. Brain fog, heart palpitations now going lower, heart palpitations, and I will ha happily explain why. But in a nutshell, it has to do with the fact that our hormones control everything in our body from head to toe. And so we can have skipped beats because our heart sensors are sort of detecting a fluctuation in hormones, which it does not like. So that can be a common, but more, um, a common symptom of menopause that's uncommonly, I guess, discussed. Mm -hmm. um, digestive changes, weight gain, bloating, constipation. Some of those, again, may seem obvious to some, and some people, they're just learning that these things are connected to hormones. Changes mm -hmm. in urinary frequency, urinary tension, sexual function, muscle mass, so many things. Joint aches and pains. That's a really common one. Big for I me. Heard, 
Yeah, I hear it all the time. And there's actually estrogen receptors in our joints that help to lubricate our joints. So I hope that gives a quick overview of both some of the more uncommon symptoms and then kind of compared to some of the common and with social social media and all of these, um, you know, topics really blowing up, some of your listeners may like, oh, I know that one. And hopefully some of them are new. Yeah. Well, you are doing just fine at the social media thing, so much so that um, your presence on social media caught the attention of one Oprah Winfrey. I mean, that's all. And yeah. this past spring, um, some of your followers, and again, if someone is new to you, um, they need to know that you are actually tapped to be a part of Oprah Winfrey special. It was called The Menopause Talk with Oprah, Drew Barrymore, Maria Shriver, and Sharon Malone, MD. And the whole point was to, quote, set the record straight on everything everyone, including your doctors, forget to tell you about from brain fog to hormone replacement therapy. And of course, the whole focus being on menopause. So you're doing great at the social media game. Um, and I figured, why don't we start really high level here? And, you know, if we can have a bit of a menopause 101, I think it's important that all of us start on the same page with regards to terms and definitions and what they mean so that when you start to drop other words, we are all starting at the same place. So it, it sounds like um, a, a very basic question, but what is your definition of menopause? This is a great question because people do use these terms interchangeably. And so let's just sort of define the terms here, right, as we start off. So menopause by the textbook is 12 months of no period. And after that one day or at that day, at that mark of 12 months, you can say, aha, today I am in menopause. And after that, every day after that, you are actually considered postmenopausal. So menopause is one day. One day. It marks the one day that you've gone 12 months of no period. And you are always postmenopausal after that. And a lot of times we think that menopause means symptoms. We'll say, oh, I'm done with menopause or I didn't even go through menopause. But truthfully, we all have actually a natural progression. And it's weird to say I'm postmenopausal because that feels like, you know, your mom, your grandmother's postmenopausal. But it's kind of like being postpartum. If you have ever had kids, you know that your body is, once you're postpartum, you're always postpartum. And once you're postmenopausal, you're always postmenopausal. Now, some women cannot use the 12 months of no period because they may have their uterus surgically removed. They may be taking birth control pills continuously and not getting periods, or they may have an intrauterine device or an ablation. And so it's actually not always that easy to know exactly when it is. And even if you didn't have any of those things, gosh knows if you're like writing it down and you actually know the date. So this is why tracking can be really helpful. And if you're one of those women that can't use periods, there are some labs that can be helpful to give you a better clue. And then perimenopause, as you so importantly mentioned, is the time leading up to menopause. And it's clinically diagnosed. Clinically means I'm the clinician, so I decide. There's no one specific lab that's going to say, you are now in perimenopause. Mm -hmm. It is really more a constellation of symptoms. And one of the more common ones is irregular periods or change in periods. But again, some women don't use periods because they don't get them. And symptoms such as, again, the traditional things, hot flashes and nice ones, or the more uncommon things like we talked about, heart palpitations, itchy ears, joint aches and pains. And so 
perimenopause can last a particularly long time. There's data to show it can last anywhere from one to 10 years. So those are the basic definitions of menopause. So let's talk about ages for a second. Right now, what is the average age for an average woman to finally enter menopause, that day when she no longer gets periods for 12 months straight? So the average age of menopause is currently 51, 51 and a half. It's actually inching upwards, which mm. is an interesting and good sign because actually the later your menopause is, the longer you tend to live. And perimenopause per the CDC, the average age is 47. Although I really believe it is much younger than 47. Perimenopause is particularly difficult to diagnose. Actually, both of them, as I just mentioned, are not that easy to diagnose. And a lot of times we're going by recall. The doctors were kind of guessing. We're putting these things together. So the average ages are really actually just ballparks, right? I have patients of all ages in all different stages. But when it comes to perimenopause in particular, I feel very strongly that the ages are probably younger. It's just not clinically diagnosed. It's not really validated. And so I think actually symptoms tend to start in our late 30s, early 40s, although I could have some selection bias because patients who have symptoms definitely come to see me. So I think the average age in in my worldview is probably closer to 45 for perimenopause and 50 for menopause. But the textbook will say 47 perimenopause and 51.5 for menopause. Okay, interesting. Now, let's talk about lab work for a second. I know this is hotly contested, at least certainly in my circles and even with myself, because I am a woman who likes data. I'm a woman who likes to know numbers. I like to know where am I in the world, and I love concrete evidence to say, yes, X is happening, no, X is not happening. And so I know my personality. And so when I started to feel perimenopausal symptoms, I was like, great, let's do some blood work to see where my hormones are at. So I'd like to hear from you, the actual doctor, where do you land and what is your advice to women listening about lab work as it pertains, whether it's perimenopause or menopause or postmenopause, how important or necessary is it or is it at all to get lab work done? And then what would we be looking for? Yeah, this is a great question. And it is hotly contested, although I'm not really sure why it's so hotly contested. It seems to be that you know, we're making much to do about nothing. I think, of course, the idea here is both patient safety, minimalization, and not, you know, increasing worries unnecessarily would be the argument for not drawing blood work, which is really what a lot of the professional societies say or recommend is that this is a clinical diagnosis. And I just said the same darn thing. It's really a clinical diagnosis. Now, for example, during the pandemic, during lockdown, I was doing menopause and perimenopause medicine, and a lot of women could not go to labs, did not want to go to labs. And so truthfully, I really do not feel like it significantly impacted my ability to appropriately treat patients. Every once in a while, it might be necessary, but it really was few and far between. So truth be told, the guidelines say that it really should be clinically guided. Now, that's assuming that there's a lot of clinical experts, and there's not. So this clinical expertise of really being able to take into account your symptoms 
and understand how you're responding to medications, let's say if we are using hormone therapy, and then being able to adjust them without lab work can be done. It just takes a lot of experience, right? And so therein lies sort of the conundrum here. The way I like to practice is I actually give my patients a choice. And the reason I give them a choice is I have some patients who love numbers. And when I say, eh, we'll just kind of go by the seat of our pants, they're like, I would just like a little bit more concrete data involved. And I actually love that because they're giving me the opportunity to actually Uh, what's it almost called, Um, validate what my kind of guesses are, right? So I love my patients who have no problem doing lab orders and allowing me to kind of check those. And I do that for those women who really like it, who feel the benefit, who have the time and the energy and or if needed the finances to get their blood work done. And some women don't want lab work. They're like, oh, I hate needle sticks. I hate going. If you don't need it, I don't want it. And I feel good. We're not having side effects. I don't see a clinical need because, of course, I will jump in where I have to. When something seems you know, like I got to get blood work, I will. And so I really give my patients sort of a lot of wiggle room to do that. So then the next part of the question is, well, what labs do you check? What labs are helpful when, you're, when mm-hmm. your patients are interested in them? And there's really three main labs. You don't need a whole slew of lab work or, you know, papers on papers on papers. The most helpful could be your estradiol level. And estradiol level is helping us specifically if we are adjusting medications or we kind of want to get a ballpark for where your hormone therapy is. If you're in perimenopause, that estradiol level could bounce up and down. So sometimes it's not always helpful, but it is another data point when we're looking at things. The second thing is a follicle-stimulating hormone level, or FSH for short. And as that's going up, 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 that's an indication that you are going into menopause. So greater than 35 on multiple occasions is consistent with menopause. And that's that one lab for women who are not getting periods, who cannot use that 12 months, that is the most helpful for them to see when they're going through menopause or into the menopause transition or into postmenopause, right? See, even I, you know, use the slang words and mix them all up. So, and then the third is testosterone. I do like to check testosterone, particularly for patients who have symptoms that may correlate with low testosterone, or if they're interested or curious, if they're good uh, candidates for testosterone replacement therapy. And so that is the third one I might check. Now, those three are really sort of my trifecta. Progesterone is actually not all that important, although again, for my numbers people, I like to get it for them because they like to see that change. Then there are some other labs that may be helpful if the individual situation calls for it, a thyroid hormone test, a cholesterol test, a diabetes test, um, urinalysis, uh, or UA for frequent urinary tract infections, um, and others that you know may just help to rule out or rule in other conditions that may be mimicking your menopausal symptoms. Got it. Okay. I love all of that. Now, you know, women across the globe, there are billions of us. Are we all going to experience perimenopause and menopause the same way? Wouldn't that be just so fun if we did? We could just kind of make a playbook and we could all share it. It would be so awesome if we all went through it in the same way, whether it was good or easy or bad. Um, But of course, the answer is no. And 
truthfully, this is what makes this to me so, I was going to say the word beautiful, but I might get some eye rolls, right? But (laughs) it is in terms of how I particularly love to see my patients and treat my patients and counsel my patients through their journey because each one is really individualized. You know, the age at which you could be, the symptoms at which you're having, both of the things that we have already talked about. What lab work have you already gotten that you may already be confused about? And then for each person, I really like to think about what are your health goals? What are your top priorities? What are your biases coming into this? You know, what are the things that you're still stuck on that, you know, we got to work through? And so because each journey is different in time, in length, in treatment, it is really quite a beautiful thing to find an individualized plan that that works for you, that works for everyone. Now, this utopian view of the world is of course, what wakes me up every single morning. It's what gets me on social media. It's what gets me to keep building and starting all these different clinics is because I would love the opportunity for all the, I don't know, like 2 billion women to be able to craft their own midlife and menopause journey because we are beautiful, important creatures um, and we should, should be treated as such. And I think all of the social media and the podcasting and the talking and the, you know, having so many public figures, yourself included, talking about their journeys is actually really changing this entire conversation. It's changing the momentum from top down. Scientists, researchers, doctors, politicians, they're all getting on board and saying, yeah, we haven't been doing this right forever. And we want to change this. I love that. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, You know, obviously, I found you on social media, and you are making huge, huge strides in just educating women, and anybody who has a woman in their life and cares for women, um, and sort of straightening out the misinformation and disinformation out there as well. It is, I, I love that there is this momentum right now to talk about it. I think it is vital because We've been ignored in the science. We've been ignored in medicine. We've been ignored in, you know, care. Um, and and I think that this is a really pivotal moment in history, for sure. I'm going to get to some questions that I've got in my head that I, I didn't think I was going to ask you, but I'm going to put those to the end because some women are saying, okay, great. Like, I have no idea what's in store for me, you know, how good is it going to be? How bad is it going to be? We hear horror stories, of course, because some women are really suffering out there. And then there are some women that I know who have zero symptoms. So is family history, for example, you know, is there anything to give any of us a heads up as to what perimenopause or menopause may be like for us just within looking in our own gene pool? And you know, is there a way for us to sort of prepare or know what we might be getting into? And then what percentage of women are symptomatic versus none at all? So many good questions. And it's crazy to say this, but 75% of women will have symptoms that last on average five to seven years. And that statistic is shocking, but if we use it instead to 
be empowered as a, instead of being disappointed, which I I get, we're actually so much farther along where than we were even five years ago when we didn't even know or we weren't even prepared or we weren't even talking about it at all on social media and podcasts and on daytime TV. So the fact that we're going to have these symptoms or may have these symptoms for a particularly long time behooves each of us to think through and to have a consult when possible on how to best thrive and treat these symptoms uh, because it's so pivotal to how the remaining decades of our life, the better second part of our lives, really are. So again, that's five to seven years of symptoms for about 75% of women. Now, can your family history help you? Well, unfortunately, not so much. There's some clues that we can gleam, but they're um, not perfect, meaning I will have patients that perfectly follow in their mother's footsteps or perfectly follow in like their aunt's footsteps. Me and my aunt have hypothyroidism. Me and my aunt were always pear-shaped. Me and my aunt had you know, menopause at the same stage. I will have patients whose siblings are so different from them, patients whose siblings are so similar, patients whose siblings don't talk to them at all about what happened, and patients whose siblings do. And so family history is really a window. It's an important clue. And information gathering is so helpful from your family, even if it doesn't necessarily point to menopause, meaning you're not even really sure or your mom and your sisters all had hysterectomies and their ovaries removed, so it's not that helpful. But it may be interesting to know, oh, I didn't know this aunt and this aunt had colon cancer and that uncle had prostate cancer. All of these things in midlife about your family history are really very important because Yes, I talk about menopause, but I'm also an internist, so I'm kind of also thinking about you as a whole. And one thing that I will add here is what's actually probably more interesting than your family history is if you had any obstetrical history and if you have and your gynecologic history are both really freaking helpful. My daughter always asks me if freaking is a bad word because I think it's close <laughs> to the other F word. <laughs> so it's so funny because it so, sounds so dorky coming out of my mouth, but anyways... <laughs> Your obstetric and gynecologic history are so helpful. So let's actually think about obstetric history. Not everyone has pregnancies and not everyone has children. But if you did, pregnancy is a really interesting window into how you might feel as your hormones decline, i.e. postpartum. So we do see associations with postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, into mood disruptions in perimenopause and into menopause. Now, if you didn't have births or pregnancies, if a woman had severe PMS, which we actually call PMDD, it's PMS on steroids. It's when PMS is really affecting your quality of life, your personal life, your professional life. That can also be a clue that you may have mood disruptions during perimenopause and menopause. It's the exact same reason why gestational hypertension or gestational diabetes increases your risk for diabetes and hypertension later on. How did you do on birth control if you ever had any form of contraception? Did it make you nauseous? Did it feel really helpful? Did it slow or stop your periods? All of those things about our past medical history can also be really helpful as we go into menopause and as we make decisions and as we think about what maybe our biases about treatment may be. So family history is super important and obstetrical and gynecologic history are really important because if this is going to be something that's hitting us for a while, we want to go in headstrong, headfirst, and really look to ourselves first. 
for sure. Um, we had started sort of the other way around talking about less common uh, or commonly associated symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. But I think it's worth stating the big ones that you see that I guess would maybe be considered more common. So, you know, A, if you can just run through the most common symptoms that you see women suffering from and also what percentage of women are experiencing them uh, perhaps in a milder way versus those who do experience them in a very debilitating way, so much so that it it really negatively impacts their quality of life and ability to just get through a day? This is a great question and one that's very pertinent since I've been giving a lot of talks. I just gave a talk to UBS Bank. I've done talks with Paramount and Apple. I have surveyed my patients in my telemedicine practice and previously when I was at Brigham and Women's and the number one reported most bothersome symptom that affected quality of life was brain fog. And this is really important because it means that even though a lot of women think about hot flashes and hot flashes are annoying, it's funny. We're like, we had babies. We did this. We did that. Yes, this hot flash sucks, but like I can get through it. But the brain fog is so debilitating when it comes to our ability to multitask, to get our jobs done, to feel self-confident, to feel like we could actually thrive in our professional environment. We have all probably known friend or colleague or a public figure who has publicly said, I left my job because I couldn't function and feel my best due to the brain fog. So interestingly, that's the most commonly reported bothersome symptom that affects quality of life. And then the second is sleep. And of course, those two probably are rolled together because sleep is so vital to our brain health and our brain function. But sleep is also actually the second most reported bothersome symptom that's affecting our quality of life. Most women certainly know that sleep is good for us. It doesn't take us going to medical school to know that. And we know that we need to sleep. So the fact that maybe sleep is being disrupted or changed makes us more anxious, which means we can't sleep more, which means the vicious cycle goes and goes. And the disruption in sleep is so important because we know that women live the longest if they sleep well, if they sleep seven to eight hours of sleep good quality sleep at night, not be in bed for seven to eight hours. Unfortunately, that doesn't do the trick. <laughs> Thanks for making the distinction. <laughs> exactly. There is studies and studies that show that menopausal women stay in bed longer because they're just like, well, if I just stay here, maybe I'll just fall back asleep. So they actually do stay in bed longer. And this is really important because all women know, of course, I want to get sleep. I want to protect my sleep. But there is physiologic changes affecting how estrogen works in our brain and how it impacts our sleep and how it impacts memory and recall. And if we do not study these more, if we do not understand the impacts of hormone therapy for women who are really struggling and the safety of hormone therapy, we're at a huge loss for our economies, for public health, for being good wives, mothers, and friends. And so it's just so important. So those two symptoms over and over and over again rank the highest in terms of most bothersome and affecting quality of life. So, you know, in your book, what I loved, um, Unlock Your Menopause Type, what I loved was you take all of these symptoms, the really more, perhaps more common ones, perhaps the ones that are less known to be potentially connected with menopause and, and hormone changes, and you put them into basically four categories. And so, you know, we want to tell people go out and read your book, number one. But why did you decide to group them into four sort of types, menopause types in your book? 
I wanted to do that because you know how I have this utopian dream of all women having this personalized care plan. And since I couldn't write a book for all 2 billion women, I think it's actually 1.3 billion women worldwide will enter into menopause in the next two to five years. So we're really not close oh my to 2 gosh. billion. Yeah. I really wanted everyone to have an individualized journey, but of course I couldn't, you know, come up with 2 billion different types of menopause. And so I really saw this, the most common ones that I see over the last decade to help sort of people peel away some of the biases. For example, I talk about the mind-altering menopause type, which has so much to do with new onset of depression, anxiety, OCD. It could also be grief. It could be adjustment disorder as parents are aging, as children are leaving the house. And for so many women, that's actually the biggest change. And it's not so much that they maybe, maybe they are having hot flashes, maybe they're not, but that doesn't bother them. And so we're getting women misdiagnosed with either bipolar or depression, major depressive disorder, when really this could be hormonal and related to hormones. And so I wanted a way for women to feel validated and to feel included in in this conversation. One of the other types on the other end of the spectrum is premature and early menopause. And I felt like there were so many menopause books geared towards women in their 50s, which again, that's the average age, but that's the average age. Um, a lot of people heard the soundbite of me on the Oprah panel discussing my 17-year-old patient. I have a 23-year-old patient. I do. I have plenty of patients in their 20s and 30s that are in menopause, either because of autoimmune conditions or surgery. And they should be looked at completely differently through a different lens. The treatment plan is different. The risks and benefits are different. And so I wanted there to be a fun way for menopause to be inclusive. I wanted to find a way to help uh, women start kind of thinking through their individualized journey, like their individualized plan. And, you know, just kind of have a different hook on all the menopause books out there. There are some really good ones. And so I, I kind of wanted a different spin. And this has kind of always been my spiel is like, how can we make this personalized? One size doesn't fit all. And I really, I really, I really doubled down on that <laughs> when I made a menopause type book. I love that. So we're going to get, because I can imagine someone's listening right now, someone's watching, and they're like, okay, we, we got all the definitions. We know what's going down. It's it's rough out in these streets <laughs> if you're a certain age and older. And so, yes, we're going to get to treatments in just a second. But why do you think, you know, besides some of these symptoms being a nuisance or in some cases being downright disruptive to the quality of your life? What are other health concerns that we need to be thinking about as, you know, hormones start to shift and we are entering perhaps what we think may be the perimenopausal years and leading up to menopause? What are the other health concerns that as women and uterus owners that we also need to be thinking about at this time? Yeah, this is a great question. And it's going to start to dive into treatment. And it may sound a little bit like Debbie Downer as I talk through this, but it's important that we we as women are tough. We can handle it. And we should know the truth about what's happening to our body as a whole as our hormones start declining. So something really important happened in 2020. The American Heart Association came out with a statement that said menopause is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And this is extremely important. This is basically saying that our heart health changes as we lose our hormones. But 2020 was a pretty busy year for a lot of people <laughs> when it came to infectious disease. And so a lot of other health news didn't really make the front covers. And we know why. 
But this is really, really crucial because if menopause is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, and we know that women who take hormone replacement therapy who are good candidates within 10 years of menopause have reductions in cardiovascular disease, there is a clear link here that actually estrogen is actually anti-inflammatory. It's a vasodilator. It opens the blood vessels around our heart, which helps to reduce cardiovascular disease and heart attacks, and is actually a really good hormone to have, even though somehow the messaging has become that estrogen is dangerous and harmful. So we're going to talk about that next. The second is your bone health. It doesn't take a rocket science also to know that our hormones are really important on our bone health. And as we lose estrogen, that is when women lose the most bone. In fact, I think it's really important for women to get bone densities one to two years after menopause. And currently, this is not what the, well, in the United States, we have the United States um, Preventative Task Force Services. They recommend bone densities at 65. And I'm going to bet also in many other countries, it's much past menopause without any risk factors. But what if menopause was a risk factor, as it should be? then we have a reason to check bones earlier. So bones. The third is your brain. And we know that three things that land a healthy woman in a nursing home is a broken hip or a fractured spine. Okay, so we just talked about bone loss. Um, dementia, which is the second. And third is urinary tract infections and the urosepsis. And I'm going to get into pelvic floor next. So for on brain, what we need to know is that estrogen impacts our brain function. It impacts it in many ways. There are estrogen receptors all over our brain, both our frontal cortex, our hypothalamus, where actually there are neurons for estrogen in our core body temperature, probably memory, processing speed, so many things there. And we're at the tipping point of a lot more research coming out on menopause and the brain. So we should stay tuned, but please do not neglect the fact that estrogen plays a role in brain health. And then the fourth is a pelvic floor. And so it's funny because we've certainly could talk about vaginal estrogen as a whole separate show. You have me on, we'll talk just about pelvic floor health. But, you know, a lot of clinicians think about vaginal estrogen or for a sexual health, for vaginal health. But the pelvic floor <laughs> contains, you know, basically the muscles that keep our uterus and our colon and our bladder like all in place. I know I'm saying uncomfortable words, but that's kind of what it does. And, you know, the hormone decline can change our urethra, our bladder, our ureters. It can make us more prone to urinary tract infections, burning, itching, dryness, um, and then sexual discomfort, which can lead back to the brain when it comes to changes in libido. So my gosh, I know that sounded like a long list of things, but it's so important that we know. It's so important that we know because then we can advocate, then we can make change. That's exactly it. That's what this is all about. I think that in the coming out of the era where nobody was talking about it, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I suspect a lot of women feel the same, which is we are the generation that doesn't want to go through menopause like any other generation before because we've seen our mothers suffer. We've seen other women in our lives suffer and also suffer in silence because nobody has been talking about it. So I personally appreciate talk all the pelvic floor you want, talk all the bladder and colon you want, because we need to usher in a new era where um, knowledge is power. And I think that unless we get all the information, there's nowhere to go. And so I think we are the generation that wants to do menopause differently. And that's why 
say all the words. I mean, I, I personally, I'm just soaking it all in and I'm sure the listeners are as well. Okay. So we're going to transition now into a big section and it is in fact our final section because it is, it's big. And I think we could probably do 1200 episodes just discussing treatments. And so I do want to put a big caveat here, two big caveats, which is number one, you do practice in the United States of America. And of course, my audience, while I hope people are listening everywhere, I know that a lot of the women listening here are from Canada. And so there is going to be a difference in um, perhaps some of the references and even in the system, our healthcare systems could not be more different. And so I will put that asterisk in this. And of course, the other perhaps biggest asterisk, which is Dr. Hirsch, you are here giving us education. Um, You are not here to prescribe or diagnose anything for any of our listeners that this is information that every single person listening hopefully takes in, digests, takes what they think is pertinent to themselves, and then goes to their primary care physician or primary health care provider. And this is a jumping off point to have information so you can go to your doctor or your healthcare provider and you've got more information than you did before. So I do want to put that caveat in before we jump in. On that note, so I'm an average age woman. I'm having perimenopausal symptoms. I'm one of the 75%. Maybe I'm having hot flashes. Maybe I'm having terrible brain fog. Maybe I can't sleep. You know, maybe I'm having heart palpitations. I've got stuff and I don't like it. And I want to have a better day. I want to raise my kids. I want to be able to go to work and feel normal again. What are my options to take care of these symptoms? Such a great question. I There's really three big categories we're going to break these down into. And we'll probably spend the most on the first, which is hormone replacement I like that therapy. you're rolling up your sleeves. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> You know what? As this I'm is Dr. like, Hirsch let's get this is my sport, <laughs> Melissa. Um, so we've got hormone replacement therapy, we've got non-hormone therapy options, and then we have lifestyle, which includes diet and exercise. Actually, I- I'd lie. I said we we're going to start with hormone therapy, but let's start with let's start with diet and lifestyle for just one quick word on diet and lifestyle. And the one quick word here is that. It's so important. So it's important because it is going to be the backbone of how you treat your body and the habits that you form. So whether that's drinking enough water, getting enough sleep, getting in your movement, you know what lifestyle is. There's there's really nothing new on the lifestyle front that I can probably impress anybody with. And doing the lifestyle is is it is such an important thing. I always watch you on Instagram. You're so motivating, like working out in your gym and your garage. I'm always like, I should go too. If she could do it, I could do it, you know? <laughs> and getting those things in are really the backbone of how we actually treat and love ourselves. But what I say to my patients all the time, and a lot of patients and a lot of women, a lot of listeners are actually already trying really hard. But society constantly gives us messages that like, well, you're not you're not exercising in the right time. You're not eating at the right time. You're eating the wrong the, the wrong crackers. You're eating the wrong fruits. You're eating the wrong fruits at the wrong time. Like there's constant messages. And what I am here to say is that there is a massive and significant physiologic process going on that is outside of your control, outside of your control. And it's involving your genetics and your proteins and your molecules and your DNA and all of these things that no matter when you eat or when you exercise, some of these things just do fall in that zone of out of your control. And hormone therapy is a really safe and effective option for so many women. And the reason I want to touch on this particularly 
Not to say it's the one and only, not to say it's the one size that fits all, not to say everyone should do this because none of those things are true. But I do think that all women should know the actual risks and benefits and actually be consulted individually on their own risks and benefits, which we can't do on the show. But I do think that the messaging of estrogen being dangerous and harmful is absolutely outdated. The most harmful thing that ever happened to women. And we are flipping the script. We're watching this happen in real time. What's important and crucial to know about hormone therapy, if I'm going to kind of whittle this down in one to two minutes, is that numerous professional societies around the world do carry the position that when hormone therapy is started within 10 years of menopause, and if you're in perimenopause, you're not even there yet. You're actually like ahead of the game. For women with no known contraindications to estrogen therapy, of which most women do not, I'll come back to the clear contraindications in a second, that the benefits vastly outweigh the risks. And the benefits include symptom relief, what we spent the whole first part of the podcast talking about, and then long-term benefits, which we just spent the middle part of this show talking about, improvement in longevity, reduction in cardiovascular disease, um, improvement in bone health, improvement in uh, pelvic floor, sexual health, heck, women who take hormone therapy work longer. And so you also get this secondary benefit, which is it's good for your body. And if you think about hypothyroidism or a condition where we have low thyroid, we don't just say, well, you know, just eat this way and sleep this way. No, if we didn't give you the hormone that you were missing, same thing with diabetes, same thing with, you know, all all the other endocrine disorders, you wouldn't feel well. Now, people get very touchy when we talk about menopause being a disruption or a disorder because it is natural. And I get that. I get both sides of it. But still, I'm making parallels to a really big point here is that our bodies were really meant to function at its peak with these hormones. And we know that it is very safe to replace them, particularly within 10 years of menopause. And when we replace them, we are now using updated formulations. That means chemical structures and routes, typically transdermal. What does transdermal mean? Yeah, transdermal means either estrogen in a form of a patch or a gel or a mist or a spray, anything that, or a vaginal ring, anything that gets absorbed through your skin into the bloodstream instead of orally and then digested in your stomach. Those different formulations and routes really set the stage for. Uh, hormone therapy 2.0, right? We are not going to have the same menopause as our mother's generation because we now can really say there is so many options and hormone therapy is a safe and effective option for many women. Now, the usual question is, well, Dr. Hirsch, if you think so many women are good candidates, well, who, who is not then? And actually, the list is pretty small. And the clear red lights, I call them, contraindications to hormone therapy, our history of personal and active breast cancer, not a family history, that is not a contraindication, a history of an unprovoked blood clot, that means a clot that happened while you were just sitting, watching TV, it wasn't from a traumatic incident, a long flight, nothing like that, a history of a clot in your lung, a recent heart attack, a stroke with residual deficits, or active end-stage liver disease cirrhosis. And really, any other scenario you can think of, you can probably think of many. What about migraines? What about smoking? What about MTHFR? What about this mutation? What about that? What about high risk for this, high risk for that? 
da-da-da, family history. They all fall in this yellow light category. So yellow lights actually, to me, mean a really good clinician can counsel the woman through those yellow lights and help you decide what are the best options if you want to use hormone therapy. If you're in a red light category, and hormone therapy is clearly contraindicated, we go to non-hormonal options. And if you're in the yellow light category and you still don't want to accept the risks or you don't want to take hormone therapy, again, non-hormonal therapy options are for you. But I think that all women should really get that, that nice understanding about the true story of hormone therapy. I love all that. We're going to have to do a future episode um, that's going to deep dive into specifically all the different ways and combinations, not only of how we can get hormone therapy, but obviously, you know, we could talk for six hours just about hormone therapy. So I think I would like to save that for another episode where we dive in specifically into what is the formulation, what is the combination, how do you arrive to to doses that finally work for you. And I do also want to put another asterisk to this that because there is a difference in our medical systems, I will be dedicating a future episode very soon to help women try to navigate our healthcare system. And as you mentioned off the top, there's just such a lack of education among doctors, physicians themselves. So if you are even lucky enough to access care, then how do you even talk to your doctor? What do you say? And you know, where does the journey start with hormone therapy? So what you gave us was a wonderful overview of how that works. I know somebody's listening saying, tell me about how much estrogen and what else is in there? And what about progesterone? And what about testosterone? And it is all valid and really important, but I don't want to glean over it too quickly. So I will do that very, very soon in the very, very near future. Um, you said something earlier that I wanted to jump on. Um, a, thank you for watching my Instagram workout videos. I love exercise. And so if uh, if it if it motivates you, I'm thrilled to hear that. If it says mm-hmm. to somebody watching, you know, maybe I should pick up a weight, then, you know, I, I'm so happy about that. Again, future episode because uh, fitness and nutrition unto themselves are huge, huge areas huge. of interest. Yeah. But um when it talk when you talk about lifestyle, um, I actually heard you talk at an event when you were in Toronto, and I think you said something to the effect of you will not out exercise menopause. You are not going to out meditate or out yoga your menopause symptoms if you happen to be a woman who's going to experience them. So I, I think that's important to hear because I think a lot of people think, well, if you eat well and if you exercise and if you're sleeping, menopause won't be as bad for you. You won't have the terrible downstream effects as perhaps someone who isn't as active. Can you just clarify where someone who, you know, is working out and eating well versus maybe somebody who's who's not able to or isn't doing that and how they may experience menopause? Oh my gosh, this is a great question. And I've had so many conversations about this with so many amazing friends and colleagues. There is a myth, and it is a myth, that if you are eating well and exercising, that menopause will be a breeze. It, it, it does sort of fulfill this self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, I will then be healthy. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you will not stay healthy. It doesn't mean that you don't already have a leg up on how to cope. It doesn't mean that as you go through these years, you've established these great healthy forming habits that you have ingrained. But 
it does not mean that menopause will be a breeze for you. It could, and guess what? It's probably luck of the draw or genetics. It still could be a complete disruption and disaster. I've had fitness enthusiasts, nutritionists, um, be patients or meet with me on social media to say, I literally, as a fitness instructor, used to kind of like scoff at my menopausal patients. And I was like, come on, you know? And menopause hit her like a ton of bricks, extremely active fitness instructor, right? This is their job. Their job is to show up with the six pack abs and the beautiful Lululemons and the beautiful hair and the beautiful eyelashes and cheer people on. But when they're hit with sleepless nights and dry skin and their hair falling out, they're almost sometimes even more perplexed. And so I think this is a good message that not, again, to discredit those things because you're ahead of the game because they're important no matter what, but not to discredit that work, but that it symptoms can still hit you like a ton of bricks. Now, vice versa, if you're kind of, you know, not into the fitness game, taking a little break from your self-care, and I'll use myself as an example. I've been traveling like crazy. I barely get on my Peloton. I've been eating a lot of chocolate. The holidays are coming up. I'm stress eating. I'm staying up late watching documentaries. Like I'm not doing great self-care. And the farther I get away from that, the harder it is to just get back into those daily habits. And I'm going to want those, whether I'm hit by symptoms or not. And truth be told, there isn't any data to show that if you are not exercising or not sleeping well to begin with, menopause is going to be better or worse. It's kind of the same thing. It's all a little bit of a grab bag. But it's likely that you don't have the coping skills that you will need. You won't have the healthy habits that you should still adopt. So by all means, they're still so important, but it really plays no role in how menopause is going to hit us. I think that is such a great, great message to hear from you. Um, We could talk all day, and I think this is one of those moments where I'm like, okay, I've already got so many ideas for future episodes that I hope, I know you're so busy, but I hope that you'll be able to to join me um, for and to discuss so many of these really broad ideas that we tackle today um, with much greater detail. So I wanted to end this episode by asking you, what is the number one piece of advice that you would give our listeners, our viewers to age powerfully? I think there's a lot of things I could say. And I think that has to do with the fact of where I am in my aging journey. And so I'm really excited to know what all of your guests will end up saying. But I think if you can get some introspection and be a little bit more clear on what you want your priority or your goal or your outcome to be, I think that's a really good place to start. And that's actually something that I'm currently struggling with and working through. And whether I get there by meditating or journaling or taking a walk, becoming more clear on what my focus is, is really helpful. And when this applies to health, because as a doctor, I ask my patients all the time, if I had a magic wand, what's the one thing I could treat for you? The reason I ask that question is I'm trying to figure out for them of all these mod podge of things, what is the most important thing? What's the rate determining symptom that is potentially worsening all the other things in their life and their environment. So it takes a lot of introspection to get clear on either what your your, your dream life is, what you want your um, outcome to be. It's a little bit different than manifesting, but it's really just kind of being able to be clear. Because I think as women, as type A women, we want to do all the things every single day, every single minute, all the time, accomplish them, check them off, and then do more. And 
that can lead us to not really being very clear on the one thing. So I think for now, that's my answer. I love that. Dr. Heather Hirsch, this is more than I could have even imagined to kick off what I hope is going to be a long journey with experts like you at the top of their field, guiding us through, I am here as a patient. I'm here as an average woman who is in this journey and wanting high quality, good information from top experts so that I can go on and make the best decisions for my life, which will then impact everybody else in my life around me as well. Thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to keep watching you on Instagram. I love your book, Unlock Your Menopause Type. And I am just uh, one of the, the millions of women out there who are watching and learning from you. So literally from the bottom of my heart, thank you for all the work that you are doing. Thank you so much for this opportunity and thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. If you'd like to connect with Heather Hirsch, give her a follow on Instagram. It's at Heather Hirsch MD. While you're there, give us a follow at Aging Powerfully with MG and at Melissa Grello. Subscribe to this podcast. Give us a like. Give us a review. We'd like to see your comments as well. It will help us a whole lot. Thank you again for being here with us on Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello, and we'll see you next time.